This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we have the great honor of hosting one of the most respected U.S. political leaders to serve in the past few decades, a visionary who ushered in a new era of value-based care in our country during his tenure at HHS, someone who is known for a strong track record of building collaborative relationships that achieve measurable results, who's also an entrepreneur at heart. Of course, I'm talking about no other than the legendary Michael O. Levitt. Eric, this is a leader who really needs no introduction, but I'll attempt to provide one anyway, if only to bring the appropriate honor and attention to his important legacy in serving others. In 1993, Michael Levitt was elected governor of Utah and served three terms. In 2003, he joined the cabinet of President George W. Bush, serving in two positions. First, as administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency from 2003 to 2005, and then as Secretary of Health and Human Services from 2005 to 2009. At HHS, he administered a $750 billion budget, nearly 25% of the entire federal budget, and 67,000 employees. Was a leader in value-based care, Governor Levitt's someone that brings great intention to the balance of human compassion and global economic leadership. And he served our country as HHS secretary with the recognition that we need the economic leadership to ensure compassionate delivery of healthcare. And in doing so, the word value actually became part of the healthcare lexicon during his tenure uh, in health and human services. And during the Bush administration, he also drove notable improvements and prescription drug plans and import safety. And after his role in the public sector, he founded Levitt Partners, where he helps clients navigate the future as they transition to new and better models of accountable care. Eric, that's a great background on Governor Levitt's leadership contribution to value-based care. And I also want to speak to his commitment to education and peer learning. As a longtime entrepreneur, Michael Levitt's biggest accomplishment is co-founding Western Governors University on January 15, 1997. It was this week, 25 years ago, that WGU began. And we spent some time during this interview talking about the success of WGU as the leading nonprofit online university in the country, serving over 100,000 students with over 100,000 alumni. WGU is a leading innovator in higher education. And with Governor Levitt's vision, it pioneered a unique learning model that measures skills and learning rather than time spent in the classroom. It has the largest college of health professions in the country that represents more nursing graduates in the industry than any other university. And with this focus on competency-based online education, WGU is able to bring accessible college education to working adults, especially those in underserved and rural communities. This is such a great part of his legacy, as well as his co-founding of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative, 
our nonprofit peer learning community that is supporting the acceleration of value-based care in our country. Well, Dan, I'm reminded of this quote that Michael Levitt once said, and it's as follows, the language of health is heard by the heart. The richest and poorest of us are bound together by the uncertainty of our mortality, the health conditions of those we love, and in some cases, the desperation of our pain. To me, this really encaptures the spirit of the value movement. We're all in this together to improve health equity, cost and quality outcomes, and alleviate suffering in our communities. And with this charge to lead, we can win this race to value. So let's go ahead and hear from the legend himself, Michael O'Levitt, as he joins us for this very special episode. Well, Governor Levitt, and it's so great to have you on, and I, I can't help but think about the introduction that you make to our podcast every week, and you say the following, our nation is faced with two very important but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best care possible for every patient, and we must also remain competitive internationally. We're truly in a race to make value-based care work now more than ever. So I thought that'd be a great place to start our conversation today. Can you speak to the influence, the structure of the U.S. Healthcare system has on both clinical and cost outcomes, and why we must fundamentally transform how we deliver care in this country? If you're going to understand the structure of the healthcare system, you really need to know the history of the healthcare system. To me, the, our system got its birth really in 1964 65 when Congress passed Medicare and, and Medicaid. Uh, they did it out of a sense of uh, compassion. They wanted to assure that we were in a country that took care of people when they were in need. And uh, the system uh, was the first time we actually had a national health care insurance system for certain groups, Medicare for those who are uh, elderly and Medicaid, those who have uh, economic hardship. And what hadn't been anticipated is how dramatically this would begin to drive costs of healthcare up because the fee for service system means that if a physician or a healthcare system wants to have more revenue, they just do more services or provide more procedures. If a patient just wants to have more healthcare, uh, they can just bill it to their insurance company. And so we've had this system that all of a sudden had these incentives that they hadn't fully contemplated. The result is the program cost dramatically more than they expected. And literally within a few years, I mean, by the early 70s, it was clear to people that this system wasn't sustainable as it was, as it had been rolled out. A group of economists at Yale began to experiment with different versions of this fee-for-service system. Uh, they took these CPT codes, these individual codes for individual procedures, and they began to bundle them into a group uh, called a DRG, which is a diagnostic group of codes. And if you had a knee operation, they would say, here are the codes that will feed into that knee operation. And they would pay one DRG for every procedure. Now, sort of the flaw here was that every procedure uh, continued to have a DRG, but it did begin to help. And people experimented with it. And, uh, it. and by the time we got into the mid-1980s, they had experimented enough that it was adopted system-wide. And by the time we got into the late 1980s and early 90s, the DRG, or this part of fee-for-service, had become part of the, of the system of healthcare in America. Now, at that time, to constrain costs, employers were frantic about this as well. They were trying to find ways to constrain their costs. And they began to organize what we now remember as managed care. Managed care was where an insurance company uh, would receive a specific amount of money, and their job was to begin to manage the costs of the patient and the provider. They would have what we knew as gatekeepers. They were people you'd call and say, look, I've got this condition and I need this kind of help, and they would decide how much care you could get, and whether or not you could get it from a particular doctor. Well, the problem with this was people hated it. They just hated it. Doctors hated it. Patients hated it. Everybody hated it. It did drive the cost of health care down, but the unpopularity of it began to create what were known broadly around the country as patients' bill of rights. And a political movement sprung up. And within a couple of years, 
everyone had begun to abandon this whole concept of managed care. And we went back to kind of the unbridled system where people could get as much care as they chose or they wanted to provide and each unit would be paid for. Uh, the cost just started to skyrocket. Well, at this point in time, it became evident that we were, as a country, spending dramatically more money for our health care than almost any of our economic competitors. And that's a big problem because we're competing around the world. And as the world became more globally oriented, as we had more global competitors, and we were competing with people who were spending seven and eight percent of their total economy on health care, but we were spending 17, 18, 19 percent of our economy, we had an economic disadvantage. And the collision of that problem began to say, look, we have a, a problem. Uh, we, we feel very compassionate. Hence, we're going to have Medicare and Medicaid, and we want to have employer-sponsored insurance and so forth. We want everyone to have care and as much of it as they can. But we're feeling this economic pressure. We've got to be somehow, we got to resolve this. And it was that collision that ultimately said to people, we got to come up with a better system than this fee-for-service system. And that's where value-based care was born. I was Secretary of Health at the time in the early 2005, 6, 7, and 8. And my goal was to basically just get the word value to become part of the discussion. And I would go around the country giving speeches about this dilemma that we had about fee-for-service. And yet we have this uh, compassionate need, and we also have an economic leadership need, and we've got to find a better way. Well, over the course of time, we've continued to, as a country, feel this pressure. And that actually is where the value-based care movement came from. It's a way in which we can resolve this conundrum between wanting to provide care to everyone, but at the same time needing to do it within an economic framework that allows us to remain competitive. Candidly, it's proven to be hard. It's proven to be hard because uh, everyone had to change the way they were doing things. And the entire system was incentivized to be able to pay on a fee-for-service basis, but the country just continues to see healthcare costs come out. And so I, I tell people we are in a race. Uh, we're in a race to see if we can make this value thing work. If we can, we can have the kind of compassionate care we want to provide, and we can maintain our economic leadership. If we fail, it means we're either going to have to begin to limit the amount of care or we're going to have to have our economic competitiveness hurt. And of course, that's a big problem because it's the economic competitiveness that allows us to pay for the kind of compassion we want to provide as a country. And we've been at this now for about 25 years. I think we're about 25 years into a 40-year transformative period. Now, I just like to say that it's time. This is the moment. We have to make this work or we're going to lose something from that capacity to deliver care that we want to give or our economic leadership. And this is going to require us to make changes. If the global economy had a voice, this is what it would be saying to us. You have to change this or there's going to be no place on the economic leaderboard for a country like you that's spending 20, 22, 24% of its entire economy on healthcare. It's now part of our economic equation. Can we remain a global economic leader and hence a global political leader? Health is going to be one of the fields of competition between economic competitors and getting our health system right will be critical to that, and value will be the means by which that can occur without compromising that sense of compassion we all feel or the economic leadership that we so much need. Governor Levitt, the coronavirus pandemic has disrupted all corners of the healthcare system, and its long-term impacts are not yet known. The healthcare industry faced unprecedented challenges due to COVID-19, with provider organizations being among those hardest hit by the pandemic. Over the last two years, 
the delivery systems worked heroically to extend capacity, creatively redesigning staffing models and workflows, and to adopt new virtual solutions that reach patients and their caregivers, all while facing drastic drops in revenue. Despite these challenges, industry experts and policymakers agree that COVID-19 has only emphasized the need for significant payment and delivery transformation. How has the adoption of value-based contracts been impacted by the pandemic so far? And how might it impact provider adoption of these payment arrangements going forward? Well, as I said earlier, we're about 25 years into a 40-year transformation to value. And what that means is, is that not everybody's adopted it. In fact, it's taken longer than I think anyone thought, and I think it's harder than people thought, but it's become more and more evident that it has to happen. The pandemic really tested it. It pressure tested it. There were some providers who were being paid under value-based payment models where they were getting a steady stream of income no matter what, and their job was to keep people healthy. Then there were other people who were dependent upon this fee-for-service system. They had to generate a lot of procedures and implement a lot of devices and sell a lot of drugs if they were going to be okay. And it turned out that those who were actually on value-based contracts did quite well during the, the pandemic. Those who weren't have really been hurt. To me, it's been a very clear demonstration that value-based care models can, in fact, be operated on or with in a successful way, and that it, again, reveals the flaws of the fee-for-service system. You were in the middle of a, a pandemic during your tenure at HHS and the emergence of H5N1. Can you speak to maybe what that was like and provide our listeners with the personal story or reflection about what you learned then, what we didn't learn as a country, and then now, hopefully with COVID, how we all come together and move forward and, and we're more aware of the, the risk associated with pandemics? So I'd been a governor for nearly three terms, and I had... Um, you know, I, I was a mature adult. I'm not sure I really knew what the word pandemic meant. I'm not sure I'd ever used it. It just wasn't something that I talked about much. Uh, though as a child, I look back and, you know, I, I went through experiences that we refer to as pandemics like polio, uh, for example, the AIDS epidemic I hadn't thought about as a pandemic. Uh, but one day I'm at HHS and I get a, on my schedule, I noticed that there is a emergency briefing from the CDC. And I walked into my conference room and there were some of the world's great experts there to tell me that there was a virus that they feared had pandemic potential. They began to explain to me uh, what that meant. And you know, it was, it was sobering. I asked as many good questions as I could. The next morning I got to work and there was uh, one of my colleagues waiting for me who had two books. First book was a book called The Great Influenza, written by John Barry. It was about the last wide-scale world pandemic we had in 1918, with the uh, called it the Spanish flu or the, the Great Influenza was the name of his book. He said to me, Look, you need to understand this pandemic thing. And he gave me the book. And then he said, The reason you need to understand it is because if you don't understand it, there's going to be one of these. And he handed me a book with a green cover that was a report on a congressional inquiry on why the Secretary of Health had not adequately managed a situation involving a pandemic in the 1970s. That got my attention because I could see I didn't understand it well enough. And so I read both books cover to cover. I read more books. I went to CDC and asked them a lot of questions. And as I began to study this, I realized that I was like the rest of the world. I had not fully appreciated that pandemics are part of natural history. Uh, they happen and have for centuries and, and millennium. They happen, and when they do, they change the world. The problem is they happen far enough apart that people forget about them and far enough apart that they don't prepare for them. And that's part of the reason that they're so damaging is they catch people by surprise. I went to the president and said, Mr. President, I'm guessing that you may be in the same position I am. I wanna to talk to you about pandemics. And I gave him the books. And to his credit, he read them. 
And it then escalated to a cabinet-wide discussion. And we realized that we were not well prepared as a country. Now, this would have been 2005, 2006. We had this H5N1 uh, flu virus. So I set out then for a couple of months to figure out how much is of a gap is there. And I realized we, look, we don't have vaccine making capacity in the United States, let alone being able to develop it, being able to distribute it. And we now all, we know all about that now because we've been living through it. But at the time, no one was thinking about a pandemic. Well, I went to Congress and met with high level congressional groups and said, look, we, there's going to be a pandemic. I don't know when, but there will be a pandemic because there's always been pandemics. And this is about the natural world and the way it works. And it, they, it is not a respecter of boundaries. It is not a respecter of, of government authority. There will be a pandemic and it will be damaging to the United States and could be an existential event to any country that does not take this seriously. And again, to their credit, they took it seriously and they gave the government, the HHS, $8 billion. Now, that sounds like a huge amount of money, but we started using it to try to develop a system of, of preparation around the United States and around the world. And it, it was very useful money. Uh, for example, we started looking for technologies like the uh, mRNA technology that ultimately became the way in which we got a vaccine rapidly. If we hadn't invested in it uh, 10 years ago, we would have not had it now. I went to every state, either my deputy or I, with a pandemic summit, and we kept saying, look, there's going to be a pandemic at some point. We don't know when it is, but we need to be prepared for it. Well, uh, that whole experience taught me one big lesson, <laughs> and it is that when it comes to pandemics, anything you say in advance sounds alarmist. Anything that you have done after it starts is inadequate. And I've now seen both sides of that. I've seen how hard it is to get people to think about pandemics before they begin. And I've also experienced, along with every other American now, how damaging it can be to an economy, to a culture, to families, to communities. This is very serious stuff. And it's the reason that it has damaged societies across history. We're now experiencing as a group, as a citizenry, the power of pandemics not to be entirely bad but it can catapult us forward because of the sense of exigency that would be created by the needs that are, it generates. Well, Governor, I'd like to ask you some follow-up about that. You know, you've had this unique experience as a leader in our country pre-pandemic, during the pandemic, and now we're facing hopefully the post-pandemic world. And you had this great quote that I often look to for inspiration. You said, you can fight change and lose, you can accept change and survive, or you can lead change and prosper. And I think about how the pandemic is catapulting our entire country and it's disrupting industries, which include healthcare. And I would love for you to maybe provide our listeners today some inspiration around leading during change, change management, and leading during difficult times. This is certainly a difficult period for a lot of leaders out there. And I know our listeners are really trying to think about how they could be more effective and embrace the future and what's to come in this post-pandemic world. So all of this is about change, serious change. And it's not a change, candidly, that we're going to be able to decide whether we want to do it or not. There is an economic imperative. The global economy is in fact saying to us, there's no place on the leaderboard for a country that will spend 20 to 25% of its entire economy on healthcare. So fix it or lose your leadership role in the economy. We're moving toward value and it is going to require us to learn and change. And there are three ways you can choose to respond to that imperative to change. The first is you can fight it and die. You'll be overcome by events. The second is you can accept it and have a chance or you can lead it and prosper. That's been the American tradition. We have always stepped up to problems like this. Every generation has had some kind of challenge like this that they had to overcome. Big enough that it threatened their leadership in the world, 
but allowed them to prove that they were able to lead. This generation has to solve this conundrum on healthcare. I believe that the road to do so is value. And I think an important contributor to that process and the learnings required for us all to figure it out can be done right here at WGU. So it's been a real privilege for me in the context of my professional career to be able to spend a lot of my time working on big problems, problems that span large populations, problems that large territories and have lots of complexity to them. Those are the problems that government routinely can have a productive role in, but it, they don't have a corner on them. Every hospital system, every insurance company, every manufacturing organization, every service contractor, everyone who works in any kind of healthcare deals with these complex problems. And here's what I have found the solution to them have in common. They have to be solved collaboratively. In a world that has the speed of information that we have, one of the things we have learned is that networked computers, for example, are much more powerful than what we used to call mainframe computers, where everyone just had their own standalone computer. We've now been able to get the computers to talk to each other, and it's enhanced productivity. However, we've never been quite as successful in being able to get people to talk to each other. And the consequence of that is that many times we fail to be able to solve complex problems unless we're in great exigency, unless there's a great emergency, we have a hard time being able to cooperate to resolve issues as fast as we could. This, in the last year, we have seen the emergence of a vaccine in one year, thought to be unthinkable. How did it happen? It happened because there was enough pain, potential pain, that we were able to collaboratively bring people together and have them figure out a way to do it that was free of the friction that comes when people are fighting each other because of their own interests. Now that happens in every organization. I've studied this a lot. And I will tell you that there are some things that have to be present for complex problems to be solved. One is that there has to be what I'll call common pain. The vaccine is a good example. We all were very worried about this. We were all feeling our own version of pain. And suddenly, because there was enough common pain or enough common worry or enough common opportunity, people began to get together and work together that would not work together before or just didn't see the need for it. The second is there has to be a convener of stature. Sometimes it's a person, sometimes it could be the CEO or a couple of CEOs, or it could be a government, it can be the president, it could be the governor, but there has to be someone who can bring people together and get them to work together. There has to be the, the people at the table who are, I'll call them representatives of substance, people who can get things done. There has to be individual leaders who will keep this going even though it's hard and it's breaking down. I wrote a book about this uh, called Finding Allies, Building Alliances the eight things that bring and keep people together. Now, I'm not promoting the book. I'm just saying this. You can get better at this as a leader, but you have to begin by realizing that certain things have to be present for this to occur. And part of leading is to understand that it's not just about you standing up and making a decision as a leader. It's about being able to bring people together and show them why working together makes more sense for everyone than to come up with one solution that creates winners and losers. We've seen that play out in the pandemic over and over again. When the stakes were high, people could work together. Now the question is, can we learn that lesson and keep doing it? Well, Governor, there's so many examples in your storied career of how you've built alliances and forged those important collaborations. And the one thing that I think of most that's inspirational to me is your founding of Western Governors University. WGU 
is the leading nonprofit online university in the country. And you founded it in January 1997, along with the governors of 19 other states. And it is this week exactly that marks the 25th anniversary of your founding of WGU. And I'm in awe of the vision that you had 25 years ago to build a nonprofit institution that can provide competency-based education to the adult workforce, specifically those in underserved and low-income learner populations. You were such a visionary at the time, and WGU has since become one of the leading innovators in online learning. And it all came about through this value alliance that was formed 25 years ago under your leadership that sought a permanent response to a complex problem. So I'd like to ask you about the founding of WGU, and what was it like forming this collaboration with all of the other Western governors 25 years ago when you were casting your vision at a time when the internet and computing power was at its very nascent stage? Did you have any idea how transformative WGU would become in education? And now that we're speaking on the 25th anniversary, what are you most proud of when it comes to your legacy and founding WGU? Well, thank you for asking. I'm extraordinarily proud of what the leadership of WGU has done over the years with a pretty simple idea that was not easy to implement. But it started, just as I had suggested earlier, with a shared problem. I was governor at the time. I began to realize that the system of higher education in its current form was going to be hard to sustain as they had all of these new demands that were coming forward. It was evident even then that tuitions were going to rise. It was even then uh, evident then that not everyone could attend because it wasn't convenient to go to campus. It was evident even then that we were going to have a lot of retraining needs as time went on. Uh, one day I was uh, at a, a governor's meeting and we had this little private meeting we called governors only and we did kicked everybody out of the room and just sat down and said what's what are you worried about and i i brought this up i said i just don't see how we can provide higher education going forward in the distant future without changing the model and i pointed out that higher education had many of the same problems that healthcare had it's paid by a third party for the most part it's hard to measure the, the difference in quality. Many times we assume that the highest quality is going to be the most expensive. None of those things make sense, but it's the way the system worked. And I, I said to my colleagues, are you worried about this? And to a person they were. And I said to them, I've been studying this thing uh, that we're all learning about called the internet. And I think it has really big potential in higher education because it changes the paradigm in a very basic way. Instead of people having to come to campus on the schedule of the campus, we can take information to them. Well, there was another governor there, his name was Roy Romer, and he said, I, he agreed totally. He said, listen, this, that both the system is going to have to be disrupted a bit, but it's got to be more than just using the technology. We've got to do something that changes the way we measure progress. Well, through the course of these conversations, we began to ask ourselves, could you create a system of higher education where it was delivered on the internet or through interaction with people on the internet and that measured student progress, not on the basis of how much time they spent in their chair in class, but how much they learned and should we be as worried about where they learn it as the fact that they learned it? And should we be measuring that? Well, those two ideas ultimately produced the core of the root idea of WGU. I went to see a woman who was the president of a major university in Arizona. Her name was Dr. Clara Lovett. I was there for a different reason, but I brought this conversation up. I said, do you think that we could begin to see the internet used and we were everybody was experimenting with it for distance education. And do you think that we could start to measure education differently? And what if we got the states together or got uh, uh, higher education together, do you think they could work this out? And she said, it is totally right. Those, those principles are sound, but there are three or four reasons why it won't happen. The first, she said, is bureaucracy. 
The second is tradition. And the third is regulation. All of it is based to protect the current system. Well, I, I said to my friends, the governors, look, I'm quite persuaded that there's something here. But I'm also persuaded that we're not going to be able to get this done within the existing system. I've been reading a book uh, by a, a, a Harvard professor who I happen to know uh, named Clayton Christensen, who wrote a book called The Innovator's Dilemma, which was that innovators are often squashed because they, uh, people who are successful don't want to disrupt themselves. And he made the point that you're going to have to do something outside the system and disrupt it as opposed to try to change the system. So we made the decision, and it was a big decision, a bold decision, maybe bolder than we thought, that we would form a new kind of university and we would do it collaboratively and we'd all do it together. And so the reason that the name of the university is Western Governors University is because ultimately there were 16 of us who came together, all put a little money together, and then we went to the private sector and we began to develop a nonprofit, competency-based, technology-delivered institution. Now, it took five years for us, actually seven years, to get to the point that we were able to get it accredited, which we knew was an absolute necessity. There's a long story here and the university's written about it and it's a colorful, interesting story. Ultimately, we succeeded. And it has grown and it's grown and grown and other institutions are now looking at it saying, why is it that you're succeeding at delivering high quality, low cost education when we are just seeing our costs go up? It's because they're using the same old tired model that isn't, it, it has fueled the, the economy of the past, but there's great reason to worry that it can't keep up with the demands. And so WGU is, I think, designed not just to be a great individual institution, it's also designed to be a way in which others can learn to innovate and to create their own system. Today, I think you're, at least as we speak today, I think there's roughly 135,000 students in every state. We've had 50,000 graduates this year. It's serving exactly the people we had intended, that is those who don't have the time or have circumstances that make it difficult for them to go to campus at a certain time to do it at the convenience of the institution as opposed to their convenience. I do think it's a good example of how people can lead collaboratively, and I was proud to be part of it. Well, we're just so honored to have you share that story of WGU, and it's an amazing one. I mean, you were certainly visionary at the time and leading a revolution in disrupting education, and we're seeing that in such a big way with WGU. I think about your founding and all the key stakeholders that made it happen from the legacy of Bob Mendenhall and currently the visionary leadership of Scott Pulsifer. And one thing that WGU is doing, which I'm really excited about, is they're advancing value-based care. Six years ago, you founded the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative with Dr. Mark McClellan. You both had this vision for a peer learning collaborative that could provide an ecosystem for ideation and collaboration that can accelerate the industry transition to value-based care. And the ACLC has become a trusted partner and convener of healthcare organizations and is known for synthesizing insights and democratizing value-based care best practices for the betterment of the industry. You and Dr. McClellan decided upon founding of the ACLC that it should be housed at WGU to provide this enablement capability for contemporizing curriculum with value-based care competencies. I'd love to hear your perspective on founding the ACLC when you and Dr. McClellan founded it six years ago. Can you also share some insights about how the WGU College of Health Professions and the ACLC can help catalyze the transition to value-based care? I'm Mark McClellan and I, who'd worked together at HHS, realized that if we're going to invent this, if we're gonna make this happen, there's a lot of learning that's got to happen, and it's not going to be simply by you know, somebody making a decision that this is the right way. It's got to be collaboratively done. And so we thought, where better to do that than at WGU? At WGU, they are all about measuring competency, measuring value. They are all about being able to collaboratively develop solutions. 
and they have a model that will attract students from all 50 states. In fact, I think there are 30 some odd thousand students inside the health college today from every state. So imagine a better place to be developing the disciplines of how value-based care works than here in a nonprofit setting where everyone can contribute and then use this very expansive network now of 30,000 current students, most of whom are working in healthcare and more than 50,000 alumni who we have contact with to be able to begin to put into place the DNA of value across the country. And it will grow from there in the same way that WGU has grown from one student 25 years ago to become the largest university, I think, in the country and clearly the largest health college in the country. And going from one teacher that they were training to having the largest provider of teachers in many categories around the country. The reason that's happening is because it is based on the right model of value, rewarding value that's created. And that's the reason that I think the ACLC is of such importance to the value movement. And, and my challenge is to every student, to every healthcare provider, whether they're a hospital or a clinic or a pharmaceutical company or a device manufacturer or a service contractor or a policy person, everyone has got to begin to take value seriously. We've got to make a commitment to value. That commitment has got to be real. It's got to be emotional. It's got to be a psychological commitment that we're going to measure how we keep people healthy, not just how you create more procedures. We need ACLC, we need WGU, and we need the 30,000 students in the health college to learn about this and to learn to practice it and to spread it and to teach it and to make this part of the American ethic. And I think that's the way this race that we're in is going to be won. Well, Governor Levitt, I really love your response to your founding of WGU and the ACLC and the importance of competency-based education. And I just look to you as a visionary, what you were thinking 25 years ago when you founded WGU and thinking about how transformative the internet would be and really creating a pathway for learning for underserved populations. And I can't help but think right now, like we're in this post-pandemic or hopefully post-pandemic era in our economy. And you look at the need for disruptive solutions, probably the two biggest industries right now that are in need of that are, of course, healthcare, but also education. The vast majority of higher ed institutions are based on kind of the old education economy that is based on degree programs. And of course, that's an antiquated type of uh, model because when the world you know isn't changing that fast, you get the, the education that you need and then you go off into the workforce. But now there's really a need in a higher education that, that has a model for learning where earner learners can have access to a progressive learning experience that can be a continual part of their lifelong journey. And WGU's really been leading in the, the thinking on this. And they're rolling out a suite of credentials now to support and augment their traditional degree programs that has the flexibility to offer students programs in value-based care and population health equity. It's really going to allow them to take control of their future, but also meet the needs of uh, the future workforce and this transformation that's underway in the healthcare industry. And it also is allowing underserved populations, affordable on-ramps to get into programs to really access this learning and have the most contemporary content. And this visioning around these non-degree offerings, I know that it, it was very much informed by your friend and colleague, Dr. Richard Merkin. So I, I just wanted to ask you if you could provide some thoughts on just the importance of certificate programs and the need to have an educational experience for an adult learner that supports them along their lifelong career path and, and just generally the need for higher education to adopt innovative uh, educational models of providing uh, workforce development for this uh, fast changing environment that we're all living in right now. Let's begin by establishing that competency measures skill sets that people need, knowledge they need to have in order to operate successfully uh, in a, a current environment. A bachelor's degree uh, that was uh, earned in the 1960s 
demonstrates that in the 1960s, they completed a requirement. It does not necessarily demonstrate that they have the competencies that are required for today. When WGU started and we began to measure competencies, to a large degree, we were attached to the idea of classes because that presented a, a learning element where people could develop those competencies. So we started off mapping competencies that were contained in courses so that people could learn the things they needed to learn. That's primarily because that's the way higher education was structured. As time has gone on, a couple of things have become evident. One is that people are going to need to be retrained over and over again. And second, that there will be many forms of what I'll call educational elements. An example, I recall when we were looking to find ways in the School of Business at WGU for people to demonstrate and learn competencies in accounting. We discovered that certain of the large CPA firms had developed learning elements that taught specific competencies that would be enormously important and required to get a competency-based degree. So this idea that learning could occur from any education element was part and parcel with the development of competency-based education. What we're now seeing is that as more certificates follow that pattern, where a person needs to have a specific area of competency and people want to know that they have it, certifications have been developed. The logical step then is to create stackable credentials that ultimately create a degree. So if you, instead of stacking academic credits, we, or stacking just raw competencies, we now can begin to measure competencies with certifications and stack them into degrees. What this creates is a very flexible system of education that's very much consistent with the digital world, where we're able to move knowledge around, mix it, match it, and customize it. By using stackable certificates, we're able to create customized degrees based on competency. This is the future of education, in my view. And I think competency is taking a step forward in acknowledging this. And uh, as you pointed out, uh, WG, who has been a leader and very much supported by Dr. Merkin, who over and over, and not for those of don't who know Dr. Merkin, Dr. Merkin is the founder of the Heritage Provider Network, one of America's largest clinical operations who take full capitated risk based on value. Uh, he has generously uh, supported the creation of these programs with his philanthropy. But he's done so not just to be generous, he's done so because he hires a lot of practitioners and he wants to know that they know what is required and therefore, this is a form of education that is appealing to him. Governor Levitt, the key enabler for the future of our industry is workforce readiness to deliver on all the promise of high value, high quality care that delivers equitable outcomes for all. We know that reforming our nation's healthcare system is an economic and a moral imperative that's long overdue. The COVID-19 pandemic has further illustrated deficiencies in the system and made clear the vital importance of a high value health system that's capable of responding to the needs of US citizens. While there have been meaningful improvements in healthcare delivery over the last decade, they have not catalyzed the transformation necessary to advance health value and equity. The promulgation of health policy, the implementation of new alternative payment models and other innovations have created a landscape for experimentation and value-based care. Yet the seismic shift needed to facilitate long-term sustainable improvements has yet to be seen. The key enabler for the future of our industry is gonna be workforce readiness to deliver on the promise of high value, high quality care. Can you share your perspective on why you think that reskilling and upskilling of the health profession's workforce is just as important as technology and care management infrastructure to succeed in value? 
I'll acknowledge again that we're in a race. We're in a race to see if we can make value-based care work before the only alternative to that, which is dramatic reductions in cost and I think hence quality, being forced on by a fee-for-service system rolls out as an alternative. What we are inhibited by in growing value in the healthcare system is a trained workforce. Historically, healthcare workers have achieved a degree, they fit into a system, and they've worked through that system. And moving toward value, we have to have ways of being able to train people rapidly and to have validated competencies. And hence, a key part of moving toward value will be rapid, repeated retraining of healthcare professionals and caregivers and using these certificate programs as a means of achieving that will be an important and I would add critical uh, component of success. Governor Levitt, I couldn't agree more, and I wanted to expound upon the the power of these uh, certificate programs and reskilling and upskilling the workforce by addressing specific needs in the workforce with regard to diversity. I mean, we all recognize that, I think for the most part, that equity in health cannot happen without equity and access and attainment of education for underserved learner populations in the health professions. And I know when you founded WGU, you were very much thinking about creating an institution that could really serve the underserved uh, adult learner. And, you know, WGU has carried on a great tradition of disrupting tradition, if you will, by by really thinking about these pathways where you can uh, create equity and access and attainment. And I know that plays into value-based care, you know, just because of the cultural competence that is really required of leaders in the clinical workforce to make sure that they can provide and culturally competent care and really mirror the attributes and characteristics of the diverse population that they're serving. We see so much in value-based care now that as organizations mature, you know, they really do need to be thinking about how do they mitigate health disparities in communities. You know, of course, there's a lot of root causes of that from education and income, access to insurance. But a, a big part of the barriers that are there also, at least in healthcare delivery, are the communication barriers and the stereotyping maybe and the implicit biases that exist because of the lack of a culturally competent workforce. And I think that's a really big opportunity for WGU and other organizations that are really thinking about equity and access and attainment is really creating that workforce for the future. So I wanted to just ask you if you could provide some perspective on just the cultural competence needed to improve care delivery for the future, especially with regard to marginalized communities and minority populations. I mean, what role does equity and access and attainment of education that's offered by WGU and other organizations, how important is that to cultivate a pipeline of diversity in the health professions to ensure better outcomes? Critical to assuring that there's equity in health care is providing access to health care, which means we have to have health care facilities where populations who've been underserved live. It's key to not simply open facilities, we need to raise the community. Rising tide lifts all boats. We need good jobs. And if we can find those people who live in the community and provide them with family wage jobs that will allow them to be lifted professionally and lifted economically, and at the same time achieve a means by which the community is lifted, that's a win-win-win. WGU started off with the goal in mind of providing access to diverse populations who would be challenged to be able to leave their home and go to a campus and gain credentialing. We designed a system around those who find that difficult, who need to work. Often those who attend WGU are people who are working in healthcare in roles that have not required credentialing, they can then get credentialing, improve their job, and at the same time, improve the quality of healthcare. This is the way disparities and injustice is in fact remedied. This is a concrete plan to move forward. 
by helping those who live in communities who can be able caregivers given education. Now, if you add to that the idea that we can begin with certificates and then stack those certificates to degrees, this is a key part of not just value-based healthcare, but a strategy, a national strategy for making progress with social inequities in health. Governor Levitt, we've been discussing the social inequities and awareness and social injustices as they've become elevated in the last few years. In the transition of value-based care, it can't be overstated how integral health equity is in the design and re-engineering of payment models. Just a few weeks ago, we had Liz Fowler, the director of the CMS Innovation Center on our show, and she discussed how CMS is considering equity in all stages of payment model development including ideation, model design, recruitment, implementation, and evaluation. I can't tell you how excited I am to see how intentional they're being in vocalizing their plans to embed health equity in every aspect of value-based payment models and increase focus on underserved populations. It's so encouraging to see how the value movement has evolved over the years through enlightened perspectives and increased societal awareness of health inequities and how we're now considering the inclusion of equity in the numerator of the value equation. I'm interested in your perspective on how this elevated national consciousness may be the catalyst to really advance health equity. How can our healthcare industry position itself to better recognize the opportunity of this historic moment to address our most vulnerable populations in reducing disparities in care? We have to make value-based care as well as payment work. And to achieve that, we have to both retrain an entire generation of healthcare workers to what that means and how to achieve it. Retraining a workforce over and over again is a challenging proposition. And it's the reason that WGU has the capacity to make a big contribution. The reality is uh, being able to take information where people are and to do it at a cost that is substantially below what other providers of medical education can provide is a means by which we can reach more people for less money, that's called value, and uh, to be able to make it high quality, that's called reach. And it also is the means by which we assure that we're making progress on health disparities. So we've talked about why is this taking so long to see value become an important part of the healthcare system. Part of the reason for that is that this is not easy. It's hard. It's a lot of change. When I was a young person, I used to work a lot with cattle. I live in the West. And um, we would gather all the cattle in the spring and we'd take them out to the range. As you'd push them along, uh, they would want to stop and eat. And it was a dirty and kind of dusty environment, lots of noise and But I learned pretty quickly that all of that noise, all of that mooing that was going on in the herd was not just about a bunch of cows having fun. It was, there was a practical reason to it because the mother cows were looking to find their baby cows, the calves, because they needed to eat. And I learned that if we didn't stop periodically and let them find each other and do what they called mother up, so the mother cow could nurse with the, with, the, with the calf. At some point, they had an instinct that said, I'm worried about this. I'm going back to the last place I felt comfortable. And they would turn around and go back. And that's called a stampede. And you don't want to be part of that. So the cowboys would pause the herd, let the cows find each other, mother up. They would nurse, and then they would move forward. What I learned from that is that you can move too rapidly in change and people will stampede and go back, but you do have to nudge them forward. And so part of this process is that we are trying to nudge change, teach people, learn, spread the learning around and keep it going in time that we can win this race because the race is happening no matter what. Our job is to make certain we're moving forward and doing it in the fastest way we can without having people revolt, turn around, and go back to the fee-for-service system 
where they were comfortable. Thank you, Governor, for joining us today in the race to value. Thank you. See you later. All right. Take care.